0: Mildly entertaining, somewhat obscure guests, relatively interesting topics, semi-professional production quality, reasonably well-informed commentary, a great value for the money, hundreds of fans all around the world. It's the Starting Strength Gyms podcast with your host, Ray Gillenwater. all right we're back here today with my coach will morris doctor of physical therapy starting strength coach and uh check out the link above if you haven't seen the first video in this series so for context will let's let's break down what's happened so far late last year i had a neck injury i got neck cranked in jujitsu i had a a c4 c5 disc issue that was impinging the nerve in my neck and then was affecting the function down my left arm and uh if that is not addressed, that can be a real problem. I've seen many fighters that have had a similar injury and their arm is just totally atrophied. Um, so I am very lucky. I'm very lucky because I know Mark Ripiteau and I'm aware of starting strength. And uh that's the thing that made me aware of this problem in the first place. And I'm very lucky because based on me knowing Rip and starting strength, I also know Will. And Will is one of very few people in the world that has the skill set that he has. Um I don't know where I would have gone for help. And this was theoretical at the time. I was confident in Will's capability, but here we are seven ish months later and the recovery has been phenomenal. And I know if I programmed myself, I definitely wouldn't have got it right. Cause Will, you did some stuff. You, you drove my deadlift up to 420 within, I don't know, four or five months, but you held my squat back and you're doing some things that, that are outside of my level of experience. And, um, my number one goal throughout this process was I don't want to get hurt again. I don't ever want to have my neck opened up again. So goal number one, let this damn thing heal properly. It needs to fuse. That apparently takes about a year. Goal number two, get function back. So it was the barbell that revealed to me that my arm was not functional because it it, it I couldn't overhead press the bar hardly when I discovered I had an injury. And then it was the barbell that helped me get back to to normal function and get some symmetry in terms of my strength between both arms. And, you know, I don't have any major atrophy or any major issues. And dude, so actually, let's just start there. Thank you. Fuck, man. Um, I really, really enjoy doing physical things. I really enjoy doing physical things. And I came home from the hospital in a neck brace with the drugs wearing off and, uh, you know, an excruciating pain and I'm, I'm lying there. Um, and I feel like I'm uh, a patient, right. And in those moments for, for, I'm sharing this cause for those of you that are, are going through something similar, it's important for context just to realize that all stuff heals. Um, as long as you take the right approach and you're in the right condition, but man, th- that was tough. It was tough, and it was ex- extraordinarily difficult for me to be in that neck brace for two weeks. I, I think it was two weeks, and then it was extraordinarily it was difficult tough. to not do any physical activity. Um, and uh, you know, I-, I had to change my diet because at two fifty ish, I was uh, my weight was staying around the same, but I was getting weaker and getting softer. Um, had no physical outlet. Th- this was. A physical issue that became a serious psychological challenge to overcome, and uh, I am I am very grateful to you, Will, because I I believe that I would not have the functionality that I have now had it not been for your guidance. And and the reason why I think this is important for our audience to hear is number one, there are options out there that uh, you may not that may not be standard conventional options, and number two, I want to reinforce the point that your healthcare is your responsibility. It's a point that Ripito makes a lot and it's very important. The reason I say that is is because, especially in this country, our healthcare system is so segmented and, and so specialized that there's no one that's going to have the ability to look over your entire situation. My surgeon admittedly doesn't know anything about rehab, which is understandable, so she just refers me to PT. And will no offense, but I think PT. I think Rips right about PT. I think it's mostly bullshit, um, unless you you use the stress recovery adaptation process. The second point about my surgeon is that uh, I told her I was on testosterone uh, testosterone replacement therapy when I uh, when I got the surgery, and and she, her, she's such a specialist and she's phenomenal at what she does. She advised me to be careful with with steroids because it might inhibit uh, bone growth and I was like shit that you're thinking about catabolic steroids which is a shame because there are FDA approved drugs that are out there that are made for you know cancer patients and women with osteoporosis that can help the increase bone density that actually would probably be useful for people post op but but my doctor doesn't know about this stuff so I have to know that the knowledge is, is up to me to procure and then just lastly I want to share with you guys to give you another example example number 50 throughout my life of why you really have to be careful with trusting medical professionals without managing the situation yourself in terms of your health. And that is my mom called me crying two weeks ago and she had just got off the phone. I think she'd visited her doctor and according to her, her doctor told her she is a walking heart attack. She's a heart attack waiting to happen. So I was like, well, let's figure this out. And we'll bear with me. I just want to share this quick story because it totally relates to what what we're doing. Um, she breaks it down for me, and she, she's 67, and her doctor indicated to her that based on her calcium score, she's in the 99th percentile of women her age, uh, and that's a major problem. And they, for the fourth or fifth time, they pushed a statin on her, and I, I advised her in the past to not take a statin. They were pushing it so hard that my mom actually wanted me to talk to her doctor. I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm not a medical professional. I've, I've, uh, I've, written, I, I've uh, read uh, a book about about cholesterol, Um, by Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, um, rip has taught me some stuff. I've done some research online. However, the research I have done indicates that there is no evidence that shows that taking a statin for a woman will reduce your risk of heart attack. There's no evidence that I could find. And I, and I, I raised that to the cardiologist, a cardiologist of 30 years who, by the way, earlier in the conversation mentioned to me, this is a standard protocol for all people in his profession, in this country. And I said, well, well is it possible that you guys might be wrong? Because um, he, he also said, I run an evidence-based practice, which is, a, which is a phrase that doctors throw around, I don't think they know what that means, because I was talking to him about an anecdote about someone I know, my, my father actually, that took a statin and had a nasty reaction. And he said, yeah, that's anecdotal, we're an evidence-based practice. I said, okay, then we're on the same page. If you're an evidence-based practice, please email me a link to the peer-reviewed study that indicates that a statin will help increase my mother's chances of living uh, a high quality life and, and extend her life and uh, prevent her from having heart issues. And, and you can point to some stuff that the statin can benefit you with, like uh, it's got some anticoagulant properties because there's no correlation between dose and, and lowering of LDL. And then there's some really weak uh, correlations between LDL and, and risk of cardiovascular disease. So it's just, it's assumption upon assumption upon assumption. Am I right? I don't know. I don't know, but is he right? He doesn't know either. So why are we taking risks like that? And th- this fires me up because it's my mom. Um, and this is just the standard protocol. So thanks for bearing with me, Will. That's a very long way of saying uh, for you guys that that know this and you and you want to take your situation into your own hands and you want to get more information, there are not many people. I've actually never met anyone that has a better understanding of the human body and how to, how to repair it from injury than Will Morris. So Will's back with us today. And uh, I want Will basically to break down exactly how he approached my rehab, so that you can benefit from it if you ever find yourself in a similar situation. So, Will, let's let's start there, man. Um, give us give us the context, the background, how you approached this, and uh, what your overall you know h- how you thought about this, and w- and what you what you did specifically when it came to putting me back on track without putting me at too much risk of re injury.
1: Yeah. So, the first thing I'd say is, if you think I understand the human body and how to repair rehab injuries better than anybody else. I would just say that you have a, you have a small population pool to pull from.
0: I need to know more people.
1: There's probably probably people out there that know this a whole lot better than me, but I um, think you're humble,
0: man. Nick Delgadillo rates you. When I asked Ripito about the nature of this, of this surgery, he told me to call you. So there might be better guys out there. And and if you're holding back, introduce me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah so I think one of the one of the important things with your um, your your condition was that you know I think we talked about this on the last podcast and I think it's important for everybody to know this that this was not just you know you tweaked your neck and you had some numbness and tingling down in your arm um, that this was actually like motor function was being motor function was being impaired right and it was being impaired significantly you had overt weakness um, and that that right there is what was the the impetus for us to tell you hey you need to you need to go consult a neurosurgeon which by the way whenever you went to your first provider they they were going to refer you to pt they were going to refer you to me and
0: he, this, and this a, fucker were, said he'd never seen what i've had before and he will he refused to introduce me to your neuro and i told him i have seen this before and uh, my understanding is that it's a neuro issue and he disagreed and still sent me to an osteo and he's the gatekeeper yeah. to my health, right?
1: Yeah, so whenever somebody has overt weakness like that, and, and you know, there's there's a big difference between perceived weakness and overt weakness. Whenever, I mean, you're normally pressing 150, 160 overhead and you you put 65 pounds on the bar and you can't get it overhead with that, that arm, that's overt weakness. If you're normally pressing 160 and then you normally do it for a set of three and you only get it for one today, that's that's perceived weakness right it's not that's not overt weakness i believe Whenever you have over just,
0: just real quick i believe on the day that i discovered the injury i believe i was supposed to do 180 for six and i could uh i maybe got the bar overhead i definitely didn't get my force warm warm-up of 95 overhead i mean i just went like that didn't go and i put it back down and the gal at the rack next to me the owner of the gym rachel fox thought she's like are you having a heart attack or something it was really strange
1: yeah. And so that was that was why whenever you called me and it, you told me that, I was like, all right, look, man, you, you've got to go to a neurosurgeon. And so do whatever you got to do to get in to see a neurosurgeon. And then obviously, I mean, you went and saw the neurosurgeon and they agreed that this was urgent. And so they got you in within 48 hours, I believe. The next right? day. Next day. Next, next day. day. Um, yeah. So typical protocol whenever somebody has what you had just an anterior cervical discectomy infusion is, um, used to, they would put you in a collar for six weeks. Now it's much more common for them to either put you in a a soft collar for two weeks. And there's some neurosurgeons that don't put you in a collar at all. I think, um, in your case, you were put in the soft collar just because the neurosurgeon probably understood that you were probably going to push the envelope a little bit. And that was some modicum of protection. Um, because, you know, if you think, if you just kind of look at the physics of it, I mean, you're a big guy, you're a big guy, you have a big head. And so they, they put this, they put this, um, this plate in there. And then you've got the, you've got the bony fusion, um, uh, the little strips of bone that they want to create the bony fusion and just physics. I mean, you're a big guy. And so whenever you move, there's more forces going through your neck than there are somebody with a neck like mine. Right. So they put you in the collar for two weeks. And the big thing starting out with you was um knowing the psychological impact of immobility for you it was let's just get you doing whatever you can do so once you had your first post-op appointment and there was no signs of infection then we got you to where you were riding the air bike and you were going on walks which i know for for a guy like you i mean you've trained thai boxing muay thai you've done martial arts for i don't know how many years i mean you're an experienced trainee like being programmed to go on a walk was probably not the not the best for your your mental health but it at least got you doing something right and then we also started you with partial range of motion so the first 2 weeks first 2 weeks we had you doing just partial range of motion with along with the the air bike and the and the walking so we just had you doing 25% range of motion so just to get you moving but not anything to stress the um, the potential fusion. And we did that for, we did that for two weeks. And then at the two week mark, whenever the, the collar came off, that's whenever we started with the empty bar and with bench press and overhead press, I think you started with the 10 pound bar. Um, whenever, whenever I first programmed that, um, I just programmed you like just open weight, like, like find what you can do easily. And I think you first tried the the 20 kilo bar and you couldn't move the t- 20 kilo bar. So you had to move all the way down to the, the 10 pound bar. And you started that on the second week, going into the third week. And that's what we started with. And because it was 10 pounds and it was no stress, um, it was no stress. Then we did higher repetition, which is something I don't normally do. I normally do Um, higher weight and lower repetition, but whenever you're so artificially limited on how much you can lift, then at some point you have to add stress somehow. And so we were using high repetition just to work on the motor function and the motor control because prior to the surgery, you couldn't even move your arm in a coordinated manner overhead. Like, I mean, it was actually kind of sad watching you try to lift your arm overhead because of how you had to like compensate. To try to get your get your arm overhead
0: it gets stuck remember there was like a catch right around here
1: yeah uh, and then you could kind of like shift and you could you could compensate and then then your arm would go up but it was still it wasn't coordinated and so you could see you could almost see like different motor units like trying to trying to get involved in the movement and they weren't there so then the body would have to pull in something else and so you had just these really uncoordinated movements so we started with the bar and we just we just did sets of 10 that second week we were able to go up five pounds and we had your head supported on the bench because i didn't want you i didn't want you pushing your head down into the bench if it got heavy so we elevated your your head with a folded towel or something like that just to keep you in a little bit of flexion because right after an acdf flexion is a safe a safe movement but in range extension or uh, resisted extension is really not so Elevated your head, um, cued you to maintain a soft neck whenever you're pressing because I didn't want you to I didn't want you to extend up and I didn't want you to bear down um, into flexion whenever you're pressing. So the cue was just to maintain just a soft neck and you did that well. And then so the on week two, whenever you first started benching and overhead pressing, you were doing the 10 pound bar for sets of for sets of 10. The second week we moved up to the 15 pound bar and you did sets of 10 on that. And then you went up to the 45 pound bar. So on the third week of training, you're already back up to the 45 pound bar. And it's interesting going back and looking at your, your rehab feedback because the first, the first time that you did the overhead press with 10, like your feedback was, wow, that was a lot harder than I ever expected it to be. Mm -hmm. And then you did the 15 pound bar the next week and you're like, eh, it wasn't bad, but it was still, still relatively hard. Then on the third week you blew right through your warmups and went right up to the 45 pound bar. And then that started, that was easy for you. And so then, and at this time, I I think people probably should know that like we were talking before we started recording is I wasn't programming you for a week at a time, right? I didn't template your rehab for, for a month or two months. Like I was programming you day to day, to day, to day. So I'd program you for what would be tomorrow. We'd see what your, what your performance was. I'd read your, I'd look at your videos. We'd, we'd uh, communicate back and forth, and then you would get programmed for the next day. So this was day to day to day programming. Um, <clears throat> got you up to the 45 pound bar at week, week four, you started progressing linearly at that point. And then on, at the six week mark, that's whenever that's whenever you had that kind of the second epiphany stage where all of a sudden you went from benching like 75 pounds to now you're up at like 115 or 125. Like it just shot up, which, which makes sense because tissue tissue heals and usually about the six month or the six week part uh, mark is whenever you have the majority of the healing that happens. And so we were able to take advantage of that because we were we we're following you day to day. And we're looking at your warm ups, and you are communicating with me on signal as you were getting into your warm ups and stuff like that. So we were able to take advantage of these these little um, spots along the way where you had increased function. Still, still, 125 pounds for you is not a whole lot, but that's what we could do at that time. And then at that point, then we started moving. Um, we started moving pretty much linearly on your pressing movements, but at this point, we still weren't, we weren't pulling and we weren't we weren't squatting. So that didn't come into effect until the eight week mark. So whenever you're eight weeks post-op, that's whenever we layered back in the safety squat bar and the and the deadlift. So we started having you rack, pull, and pull from the pull from the
0: floor. That was a long two months, it, Will. Yeah, I know, and months. and it
1: sucks. And I do remember some of our our conversations back and forth trying to it, trying to get you in the right headspace about your rehab. Right. So a lot of it is positive reinforcements, trying to positive reinforcement, like trying to get you to, to see where you were compared to other people that had similar, that had similar, um, procedures done or, or something like that. Right. I mean, at six weeks, six weeks, you're doing more than what most people in the, in the country could do on any given day, even people who aren't just coming out of surgery, you know? And so that's, that's a difficult part whenever you're working with, with injured people or people coming out of, coming out of surgery is they they kind of always had this vision of who they were prior to surgery and they see themselves as being somewhat less than what they were. And they kind of lose, lose sight of the journey and how, I mean, it was, it was almost, almost fascinating, just like how little attention you paid to your progress over time. Like you move from a 15 pound bar to a 45 pound bar and your only feedback was uh, the 45 pound bar was a little bit heavier than I thought it should be, but it's like, dude, that's three times what you did last week. That's a 300% increase. And it was just, but, but, you know, I do think that like that same type of that same type of like, uh, psychology is what got you to this point in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Not, not as far as that, the man. injury, but that's good, but uh, that's right the injury too, what, actually, <laughs> that's, that's probably what, what, made you like seek like maybe perhaps a a better way to rehab this, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, your end goal was that you don't want to get injured, which you don't want to get injured again. And and I kind of understand that, but at this point, if you, if you ever have a neck injury, again, it's going to be a new injury. It's Mm -hmm. going to be because something, something else happened to you. Mm -hmm. I think probably more, more correctly stated is that you didn't want this, this particular injury, this particular surgery to limit what your, what your, um what your life going forward was going to be right that and, and i was pretty back. worried
0: about the fusion i was worried the damn thing wouldn't take
1: right? <clears throat> yeah. yeah and i remember your uh your interval x-rays and you know i think at 2 months you had an interval x-ray and it hadn't fused yet and there was kind of a you kind of had a little bit of a moment that that it hadn't fused yet and there was no sign of fusion but then i think um your last one done uh 6 months right it was it that? And then, Success. and it was near complete fusion at that point, which is still faster than most people, right? Cause mm-hmm. you're even your neurosurgeon said that sometimes it takes up to a year to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it did look like starting out that maybe the fusion was not, was not occurring, um, as well as some people in the, at the start, but then it really picked up steam between the two interval x-rays mm-hmm. because it went from, there's really no evidence of any fusion to now it's near complete at six months. Um, at the eight week, at the eight week post-op period, like you were still, that's whenever we really kind of were able to pin down what the, what the residual weakness was. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but remember how like you were gassing out on the bench press, but it was always the top part of the bench press. And um, whenever we would do, whenever we do like the banded exercises, because we were doing that kind of to start out with, we were doing kind of back and shoulder focused band work because we could keep you in a safe position for your neck. And it gives you, you know, some, some resistance um, or stimulus for your back and your shoulder. But once you got to about the eight week mark, then we were able to see that you did have some residual um, tricep, bicep, uh, lat and pec weakness and so what we started doing we started layering in accessory lifts at that point you know and then we started making changes to your programming to where we weren't doing we weren't doing like straight sets across instead of doing three sets of five we would do we would do something like you would do like a three plus two set because you would tend to fatigue out at the end of the at the end of the set and that would limit how much you can do for a set of five. But if we had you do a set of three, we could have you do it heavier, take a short break. I mean, like 15, 20 second break, lay back down and then do two more reps. And then those reps were still challenging, but you weren't failing on those. So we are able to get more challenging reps completed by having you do the plus sets. And I think that that was probably the one program modification that we made between the eight and 16 week mark. That continued your progress, other than just layering in the, the squats and the deadlifts, and then the accessory work. I mean, accessory work is is useful because it kind of kind of adds some v- variation to the workout and stuff like that. And it kind of makes you feel like you're you're doing something. But I really still think that the the heavy barbell work and just modifying the sets and reps so that we could get you to do more volume over time um, was probably what drove the progress there.
0: Mm. Yeah, that was a painstaking process, and the 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 real mental, the real mental challenge is, I don't, I don't know if it's just me being neurotic and having really high standards. You tell me if you see this with yourself or with your patients, but whenever I experience an injury, especially so so actually I make a distinction between being hurt and being injured being hurt is 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 fine hurt hurt just means i'm experiencing pain and being injured means to me and correct me if there's a if there's a, a clinical definition i'm screwing up here but uh, injury for, from my point of view is you've actually damaged something whether you know some some something uh in your um, you know some musculoskeletal issue has 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 happened so um you know being hurt is just uh is just part of being a fighter it's part of um it's part of being a a a strength trainee to an extent, to a much lesser extent. It's part of being an active person as part of being a human. Even if you're not active, you're still going to get hurt. Um, being injured though is, can be a bit of a mind fuck because when an injury happens, you always are curious, well, how bad is this and how long it's going to, is it going to last? And are things always going to be this way? Right. So I didn't know what to expect. I I had the surgery and then I went to overhead press and I could and I felt weaker than before the surgery. I'm like, man. And I remember the relief. uh, It might have been the 45 pound bar jump or whatever it was, but the relief where it's like, oh, it's coming back and it's coming back fast, you know, and that that brilliant, simple, linear progression, even though the sets and the rep scheme changed changed for us is just such a a valuable, useful thing in so many different situations, including this. And then, um, yeah, meanwhile, I'm, um, I don't have any aggressive physical outlet. And just for me, psychologically, I, I, I have to have that to be, to feel normal. And I I think there's a lot of men like that. And I know, I know young men especially need that. Like I can watch a kid who's got behavioral problems, join jujitsu and all of a sudden become a good little kid. Um, so it, it was just, it was just challenging. And, uh, I didn't know which direction it was going to go. I didn't know if my arm would atrophy. I didn't know if I'd have lost function in my left arm. I didn't know if my neck would fully heal and I'd be able to get to almost normal function. And I'm just kind of waiting on pins and needles while dealing with all the stress of not being able to blow things out physically. So I was just doing my very best to be patient. And this required a lot of patience, a lot of patience. But fast forward to today, it's the end of June, 2022. I just finished my fifth jujitsu session. Um, I'm not training with the competition team anymore. Um, I'm in the beginners fundamentals class and I'm drilling with my brother only and he's not touching my head or my neck and I'm not doing any front rolls. I'm not putting any pressure on my head or my neck. I'm just learning jujitsu slowly and carefully. And then, um, I'm back in the gym, lifting reasonably heavy weights, um, uh, so, uh, to the extent that my, my body composition is improving again. Cause that was all that stuff happening at the same time. Plus I'm getting soft and I'm not able to enjoy food. It's just like layer upon layer upon layer of issues. Cause everything is so interconnected with health and fitness and diet. Um, but yeah, here, here we are today. So what, uh, what happened next? Well, what, what, um, that was kind of phase one. How did you think about things beyond that? And, and how did we end up where we are now?
1: Yeah. So it was about the, I have a note on here that it was at the 10 week mark. And at the 10 week mark you kind of had this like seminal event in the in the gym you were, you were, um you were programmed three sets of three for a hundred on the overhead press and for some reason you wrote that down as three by eight and you went into the gym and you did a hundred pounds on overhead press for three sets of eight and that was kind of like this like seminal moment because the press had been the one that had been lagging behind the most and then all of a sudden we were moving you up kind of in an incremental fashion then you went into the gym and you did 3 by 8 you did 24 reps at 100 pounds and it was easy for you and so that kind of like that kind of jump started your your press progression and then it was 8 weeks later 8 weeks later i think you pressed 170 or 175 for a set of 3 and that was i think that was the highest that we got you up to because then you know you you took about a 4 week um four week break where you had some personal stuff going on and you were traveling a lot and stuff like that. So then by the time that that started, we had you back to near almost 300 pounds on the bench. I think the the highest you did was two ninety on the bench, something like that. Hmm. It was like, 285 290 something like that but you're right right at the cusp of 300 pounds which i don't think you would ever bench 300 before right
0: no i'd never done a heavy single i think i've gotten my bench to where i could probably do 300 for a single but i just never practiced heavy singles um yeah i'd like to that'd be a cool accomplishment i'd love to do three plates too I mean, I
1: think you could probably we could probably just get you back to doing heavy singles at this point, And you're, you've probably got more than enough strength in the tank to be able to do that. Mm. But once all of that happened and then you came back, then, you know, your goals kind of changed a little bit. And your rehab changed because at this point, it's not really rehab because you've gained virtually all of your function back. Mm. Your your range of motion in your neck is 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 perfect you've got complete fusion um there's there's nothing else that needs to happen whenever it comes to rehab so now it's just basically strength programming and just knowing what you can't do Mm. or what's not advisable to do and whenever you came back from that then we kind of changed your program now instead of just doing a, a pure strength program we're kind of doing um i think probably the best way to describe it would be a wave loading program so you're doing a, a week of higher repetitions, the next week you go down and we we take some repetition away. And so you go up and load and then you do that again. And then we're just flip-flopping between uh, sets of eight, sets of six, sets, sets of four. The next time you come in, we, drop, or we increase the weight again, but it's all percentage-based. So we're still, every single time you come in, whether you're doing eights or whether you're doing 12s or whatever the, the prescription is for that week, for that wave, um, the last probably three or four reps of that set are going to be are going to start getting really hard mm. um, and so that's what we're doing right now you've been doing that for about i think about five or six weeks now and body composition has changed your strength has stayed has stayed pretty pretty even to what it was whenever we we're just doing a pure strength program mm. um, there's been a significant amount of hypertrophy that's gone on during that time which i think th- that's something that i've noticed too whenever i've trained somebody for strength for a long time. Um, they have a good foundation of strength and then they decide that they want to do something more like hypertrophy based. You switch them to a, a hypertrophy type program. And it's almost like all of that accumulated strength and all the, all the architectural changes of the muscle that, that happen whenever you train for strength, then whenever you switch to a hypertrophy program, it's almost like the body's just primed to get bigger and I mean, it's at this it's point, strong enough to, to
0: lift a um, uh, heavy enough weight at high reps for it to actually have uh, uh, the right stimulus and produce um, a response, right? Otherwise, if you're yeah, if, I mean, if you're if you're not strong and you're doing a bunch of bicep curls, it's like it's not enough of an insult to, to cause an adaptation.
1: Perfect example. So, I mean, I uh, I had bicep surgery in March um, because of my uh, my proximal bicep tendon. And they released the uh, proximal bicep tendon. They did it, what's called a tenodesis, so they just fixated it to my my humerus here, and it was back in the gym, and everything was going great. Um, carried my daughter to bed, and whenever I laid her in bed, um, the tenodesis failed, and so it the tenodesis tore, and so now I've just got my my long head of my bicep is just kind of living somewhere somewhere around here. Um, Let's see, it man, but- is it
0: is it missing or what?
1: No, so I've got what's called a Popeye deformity, um, which is kind of funny. I mean, I don't really, I don't really give a damn, but um, I guess you have to compare it side to side. So, on on this side, this is this is the divot between my deltoid and my and my bicep, right? Uh-huh. On this side, it's significantly larger. Oh shit! So, so this, I'm sorry this. So it's about three finger widths, and then like the the long head of my bicep is like kind of like residing down here in my elbow now. Oh wow!
0: And you're just going to leave that but alone, right? Yeah,
1: no. There's there's no reason there's no reason to do it. So if you look at the if you look at the outcomes whenever you do a tenodesis where they fixate the the tendon versus a tenotomy where they just release the tendon and just let just let nature take its course, the the outcomes are pretty much exactly the same strength remains the same the only the only real reason to do a tenodesis is for cosmesis and i mean i'm I'm, I'm, right i'm an ugly dude and i'm (laughs) never going to be a good looking dude so it doesn't matter but you don't have a show coming up it's fine (laughs) an arm deformity doesn't doesn't change anything for me um but All that said, since, since I had to start doing more rehab for my bicep, because anytime you have surgery, like you do have to try to kind of build things back. Mm. I mean, at this point, I'm just over, or just coming up pretty close to four months. No, I'm sorry. I'm three months post-op three months post-op. I can go into the gym and pick up a 60 pound dumbbell and curl it with this, with this arm. And now that I've, I've kind of gotten my strength back and I've never did curls before, but now three months post-op, because I've been doing more bicep focused bicep work. Like I can pick up a 60 pound dumbbell and curl it for a set of five, six, eight, something like that. Whereas all the SARMS goblins in the, in the gym with their like broccoli hair, go in there and do biceps every day. And they're doing like 15 pounds, 15 pound dumbbells or 20 pound dumbbells or whatever. And like, they're trying to build, they're trying to build muscle whenever they don't have the requisite strength to lift enough to actually build the muscle. And so, Andy Baker so, yeah, and I, I think, just did like, a
0: podcast on this that I think you'll enjoy where he breaks down strength and hypertrophy and how those two things are so interlinked. And he's got a bunch of great examples and ways to frame it. But the way I look at it is don't put the icing on the cake until you've baked the cake, right? Like bodybuilding's icing yeah. on the cake. Hypertrophy work, isolation <laughs> stuff is icing on the cake, but you need to have cake first. <laughs> Otherwise you're yeah, just I, masturbating.
1: I, um, <laughs> yeah, that's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people like, a lot of guys in the gym, like blowing kissy faces to themselves in the mirror instead of actually working. <laughs> but in, in the clinic, you know, it's funny because e- even in the clinic, like I, I have to wrestle with, um, the, the bodybuilding mentality whenever people come in, because somebody comes in with, you know, knee pain and I'm going to, I'm going to give them squats or somebody comes in with back pain and I'm going to give them squats and deadlifts overhead press to, to rehab them. Um, I, I always get, well, what do I do for my quads? And then I tell them, well, you don't really need to do anything for your quads right now. I mean, you got a, you know, a 19 year old active duty, army soldier who's six foot three and 135 pounds. And he wants to know what exercises he should do for his biceps. Mm. And it's like, man, it's like, you, you don't have biceps. You, you gotta, you gotta build, you gotta build a foundation first. And so the illustration that I use for people and it's, it's been relatively effective. It's kind of the same thing is like, if you're going to, if you're commissioned to, to carve a statue, right. You, you could do two options. You could either start with a big block of marble and you just use a sledgehammer to just kind of knock away big pieces to kind of get the general shape that you want. And then at that point, then you have this like ever, uh, all these different intervals of, of chisels. And you're gonna start with the big chisel first because you got to do the big detail work. And then you work your way down to at the very, very end, you're using you know wet sandpaper and little bitty chisels to put the finest detail work in there. You know. Or you could try to work it from the bottom up where you take little pieces of clay and you try to perfectly shape them and mold them and put all the detail work and then try to put those together over time to make the statue. And it's like, which one's going to be much more efficient with your time? Mm -hmm. And everybody universally says, well, of course, like you use the marble and the sledgehammer. And it's like, yeah, your strength work, that's the sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. That's going to give you the overall shape And then you start putting in the accessory work and you start putting in the supplemental lifts and stuff like that. And that's what, that's what gives you the detail work, but you work from the biggest, the biggest movements all the way down to the lowest movements. And then whenever you're, you know, two weeks from getting on the stage or whatever, that's whenever you should be hammering away at, you know, banded deltoid raises and fucking preacher curls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But before that, you should probably just, uh, if you get your bench up to 315, your biceps are going to be big.
0: They're going to be big. They're going to be big. Yeah.
1: And you got to build the foundation first. And that usually resonates pretty well with people. I'm sure Andy probably has a better way of explaining it because he's far better at this than I am.
0: He's got a lot of experience with this stuff. Yeah. And and basically what it comes down to is, is look, for those of you guys that are out there and you want improved aesthetics, if you don't have your deadlift in the neighborhood of 500 your squat in the neighborhood of 400, your bench in the neighborhood of 300, and your press in the neighborhood of 200, don't do calf raises. Don't do cable flies. Don't do uh, what are these wrist curls. Don't do wrist curls. Just just get your lifts up. Just, just train three, four days a week yeah. on a program out of the, the gray book, practical programming. Get your lifts up to at least those numbers. And then if you want to start screwing around with the isolation stuff, you can. Because... One thing that I found, I've done, I've done the experiment for you guys, okay. When I was 19 and skinny, I tried the bodybuilding stuff. It didn't work. Now I'm, I'm stronger. I'm, I'm being coached under Will, and uh, we're, we're doing all the barbell movements, of course. And then, I mean, really, you're, we're just doing the bodybuilding stuff because of sheer boredom. It's like I need to make something. I, I need a number to go up in a way that is exciting for me. Uh, and if that is the, the circumference of my bicep fine if that's a, a subjective uh view of my aesthetics cool but i got to tell you man going to the gym for your rehab protocol was seriously challenging i had to drag my unmotivated chubby ass to the gym to do a bunch of sub-maximal boring repetitive shit, and it got to the point where i was like will we got to do something man um i'm the strength guy because you know starting strength gyms and love strength training but I am not setting any PRs right now and I'm I'm not having a good time. So, uh can we do something to make the gym more interesting for me? Can I at least have like if I'm not going to be setting PRs, can at least we have an aesthetic goal? And um and dude, I think I think you've got me in the best shape of my life. I'm at uh, 243 right now, um which is probably eight-ish pounds uh, less than where I was at right around the surgery time. Stomach's flat. Um you know, uh stuff's growing where I like it to be growing. So, you know, I'm 37. I'm have got a couple of years left of having reasonable aesthetics, work with what I've got, kind of deal. And I've never actually focused on aesthetics in the gym. Um and so
1: define uh, define a couple of years left because I'm a couple of years older than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, not shit. ready to hit the precipitous the precipitous um fall yet.
0: Yeah, these uh whatever I have left of the hundred thousand hair follicles is diminishing. Um, the lines are sinking in. The baby's coming in January, so uh, you know um, you care less and yeah, less as will, time goes on, right? <laughs> that will that will
1: age you faster than anything else.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So what what else do you want to share about your approach to rehab or? The what we went through together or, I mean, because essentially you're you're not cheap, right? I, I paid you $350 a month for six, seven months. And if you just think about, you know, is that, is that expensive when it comes to hiring a, a personal trainer or, or a remote coach? Well, hell yeah, it is, right? But in the context of, of the amount of time that I spent on the surgery and the amount of money that I spent on the surgery and the, the context of, of uh, function for the remainder of my life, If I pay 350 a month for six or seven months, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that expensive, especially when you're thinking about return on investment. So I, um, I absolutely would do this all over again and there's not much I'd really change. I would just say, Will, I'm in your hands tell me what to do and i would follow your instructions and that's exactly what i did and i got to say it's not just the programming that helped me um cuz i'm a starting strength coach but you're a more experienced starting strength coach and i remember one time i i called you from the gym because i pulled a heavy single on the deadlift it might have been 415 or 420 and um and i was like man that that something didn't feel right there and i sent you the video and you told me uh, i think i had overextended my neck i hadn't i had mm-hmm. i had my my yeah. upper back was was in slight flexion i hadn't extended my upper back hard enough which made me compensate with my neck which caused a little bit of a twinge that worried me and then you reassured me readjusted the program and everything was fine
1: yeah. And, you know, as far as like cost, you know, if you look at the few, the few individuals like in the market that do what I do, like I'm, I'm mid priced in the market. Like I'm not, I'm not the there's, there's people who charge a whole lot more than I do. And then there's some people that charge a lot less than I do. Um, so uh, cost is probably if you average it out, like cost is about, about the same, regardless of where you go, if you average it out, I mean, there's some people that's more expensive, some people that's, that's less expensive. The, the pricing that I have is generally about what you would pay for three physical therapy appointments in a, if you were paying out, like out of pocket um, three physical therapy appointments for a month, because those run about $125 um, for each session. And so if you, now most people pay a copay or whatever, 25 bucks, but a typical rehab session is about $125. And so that's the, the pricing is about three three uh, rehab sessions for a month. Could definitely charge more, but um, I don't charge more than that because I don't want to price people out of the ability to, to be able to do it. Yeah. And, and right now I've got a, a total of about 20 clients. I've got about 20 clients that are on different, different programs, but um,
0: not a bad um, deal. And, uh, and then guys like David Berkowitz can afford your services. Um, David Berkowitz will link to the interview with him and his wife, Pam, but he had what I had times five and he's a bit yes, more and advanced. He, his, he his
1: was a two-stage, a two-stage fusion. So he had a previous fusion and then they had to extend it. Mm. He had to extend it. Um, and some other considerations for his particular case that I hope gets brought up whenever, whenever you interview him, cause his, his is a very unique uh, I guess I would say it's a, a unique um, case to be presented in a forum like this, whereas it's not very unique. in, like a physical therapy clinic, we see that, that particular condition, like quite regularly. It is pretty common in individuals that age, but you usually don't see those being discussed on a strength forum. And
0: so his, his is actually a really cool case. Yeah, I think you're going to help him quite a bit. I just saw him yesterday and he's in good spirits. So thank you for helping to manage that. Um, I wanted to ask you at the beginning of this podcast, part of my intro was, uh, you know, a bit of an indictment against your profession. Um, Talk talk to me about, talk to me about physical therapists and, and talk to me about what outcome I would have and how that would be different. Had I continued to go see because when I got out of surgery, I followed the doctor's orders and I went to PT and I was doing I was doing a bunch of bullshit. And it 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 um it was stuff where she said, Oh yeah, we're gonna strengthen your shoulder or whatever, right? And it's like, I don't think this this five-pound band is doing anything to strengthen my shoulder. I think my shoulder is pretty strong, and I think it's just a one size fits all approach. And my insurance covered three days a week of PT for a really inexpensive copay, I don't know, 15 bucks or something per session but I actually just opted out of that completely and paid you out of pocket instead. Do you have any, any idea about how things would be for me if I had gone the traditional PT route instead of um, using someone that knew how to manage my situation like you?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you want to know exactly what, what you would be doing, all you have to do is just go to Google and type in Brigham and women's university rehab protocols, and then pull up their interior cervical discectomy infusion fusion protocol and look at the timeline and whatever that, whatever that says, that's basically what you would be doing. So I think at the six month mark, you would now be cleared for, for most, most to activity type stuff and things like that. Um, But most physical therapists, because of the, the litigious nature of the medical community, um, they're going to follow, they're going to follow the surgeon's protocol. And you know, in the, in the clinic, that's probably the most, that's the most likely thing that's going to happen. You'd have, you probably have some more forward-thinking physical therapists that understand things a little bit better. They have a good relationship with the referring surgeons and the surgeons are okay with them pushing the envelope a little bit more as long as they're doing, doing so in an educated and safe manner. Like I, I benefit very greatly or very greatly from having two orthopedic surgeons that I work directly with. Um, and a podiatrist that I work directly with that know exactly what we do. And they encourage us to do what we're doing. So, you know, whenever I sent you that video today of um, kind of our revitalized or refreshed um, physical therapy clinic, like that, that comes at the backing of our orthopedic surgeons to say, this is how I want my, my, um, my patients rehabbed.
0: What's that called? But- the monolith. You've got that deal that helps you bench heavy singles. So you don't have to bring it yes. over your face. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the, most, that's the most dangerous part of the bench press is just getting it off the hooks and bringing it over your face to put it in, into position. Mm-hmm. And then also, I mean, if you bench with the monolift, I think most most people that are fairly experienced can usually handle about 15 pounds or more on their working sets whenever they, they bench out of a monolift because you just use a lot of energy getting it out of the hooks and getting it over your chest. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where the kind of the danger area is. So just being able to get set under the monolift just push up, the hooks swing back. You're right in position to do your bench, and then, whenever you you get done, your arms just drift back. They go into the monolift, and then it it s- sets it right back down into place. It's awesome. And then for patient safety, patient safety, it's it's great because now the bar is virtually never over their over their face. And whenever we're working with people, like we can we can have them bench safely. We can have them bench heavy. And the only time that the bar is ever over their face is whenever they finish they finish the set, and the spotter is, has their hands on the bar, and yeah, it's great. Kudos to um, you for
0: figuring out a justification to get the federal government to pay for a, a monolith for you. <laughs> oh no, I have
1: I have pages and pages of documentation of justification for why we got everything that we did, and it's all it's all based on it's all based on uh, patient safety.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and actually, I mean, I, I don't even think like it's bullshit justification that like the justification that I used for that equipment. Like I'll, I'll stand behind that.
0: Absolutely. Um, I had the bar coming over my neck that I'd sat operated on. Right. So that's, that's a legitimate it's, consideration. Like
1: using your, using urethane plates or using uh, competition plates as opposed to cast plates or training weights, like yeah, whenever they're within a few grams of the stated weight. Um, then you know exactly how much is on the bar. There's not the wild discrepancy, like one 45 pound uh, plate is 42 pounds. Another one's 47. Now you've got a five pound misload on the bar. So for patient safety, it's much more accurate on either side of the bar. Um, The urethane plates can be cleaned better than something like a vulcanized rubber. Um, Yeah, using the power bar instead of whatever cheap bar that they they buy through the the bulk buy program mm. um having knurling on the bar as opposed to having it smooth across the center the racks that we have have the west side the west side spacing through the the range of motion so we can adjust it five eighths of an inch instead of like three three inches and all the, all that is based off of patient safety like this is we can have people do more and rehab more completely in a much more safe manner by using proper equipment. Let's talk Um, about the
0: lifts for a minute, Will, because you, we talked about the press and and what you did for me there with the progression of weights and the reps and set schemes. And then, uh, you know, keeping the soft neck. And then we talked about the bench press and how you had me put a towel underneath my collar to uh, support my head. Um, yeah, I had to kind of like grab my neck and slowly, kind of lay back for the first few weeks. Uh, and then the deadlift you basically ramped up pretty aggressively. And then, um, Mm -hmm. the squat was something that I, I am not totally clear on as far as how the, how and the, why, would you mind explaining how you approach the squat for me?
1: Yeah. So we, we had a little bit of a little bit of an issue with the squat and this, this, this ties in other, other issues that you had. So, um, I don't know if you've covered it before, but like you have some some very, um, very severe elbow pain with with um, with squatting with low bar squatting. Like that's that's been a persistent issue for you over a long period of time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and kind of no matter no matter what you do after you get to about 300 pounds, the elbow pain starts to become um, starts to become debilitating to where you
0: can't even squat anymore. And if I say fuck it and, and push through and can't use my arms for a day. Then my hips cause problems so i'm a, i'm an yes. orthopedic mess mm-hmm. thanks to uh thanks to the support right here <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um yeah uh,
1: the tax man going to come to collect at some point whenever mm-hmm. you do things like that right mm-hmm. um but so we we use the the safety squat bar so i'm not a, i'm not a huge fan of the safety squat bar um but in your case it, it was absolutely the right the right call to use and instead of using the normal safety squat bar, you used your own money and purchased a Mars bar, which is a modified, a modified safety squat bar, which instead of having a yoke around around the neck with um, the, the handles coming out this way, a Mars bar kind of c- conforms to to the torso and it kind of wraps around the top of your torso and then the bars the bars stay right here. And the reason why we did that is because with a normal safety squat bar for your condition, just having surgery um, and you've messed with the safety squat bar before, right? That if you don't, if you don't lock the safety squat bar down with your arms, then the bar rotates, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see it all the time. Somebody starts to squat down and as they're going down, the handles come up. And so the whole bar rotates back. But then as they come up, the bar rotates forward. And that's what we didn't want. I didn't want the bar to rotate into your neck because if the bar rotated into your neck it would push you push you into flexion which <clears throat> in the middle of a squat doing this is going to kind of instinctively make you want to push your neck against the pad to try to push the bar back because it just seems counterintuitive to try to manipulate the safety squat bar with your arms
2: mm.
1: so so you use this the the mars bar instead and what we did with that was because you have the recurring the recurring elbow issue what we wanted you to do was keep your arms so a lot of people whenever they they use the mars bar will will hold the bar like this but whenever you're holding the bar like this the, one of the one of the motions to keep the bar pressed up against you is going to be is going to be internal rotation of the shoulder mm. right and i didn't want that because whenever you fixate you fixate the the arm and then you try to internally rotate that causes That causes strain Mm. on the ulnar collateral ligament Mm. of the elbow, which is what most of your elbow issues with the low bar back squat tend to be what we call either valgus extension overload syndrome or ulnar collateral ligament um, pain, Mm. just because you're putting a valgus stress on on the elbow. So what we did is we had you tuck your elbows into your side Mm. hard like this and hold the bar at almost like a 90-90 position for for your elbows yeah because
0: uh, real quick, well, so I, uh, without your instruction, I would kind of flare my elbows to leave room for my torso to go in between my legs so I could low bar squat because the Mars bar puts the the load in kind of a low bar position so you can bend over with it. And so I was kind of flaring my elbows so I could get into position, but then that would I would lose rigidity in my upper back. Um, And then your cue to kind of squeeze my elbows into my torso and extend my chest and then pull down on the bar, locked it into place. And my whole spine was more rigid as a result. So it was was great to have your coaching on that.
1: Yeah. So instead of, instead of internal rotation of the shoulders to lock it down into place, whenever you're, whenever you're here and you're pulling the bar into you, you're engaging your lats because that's pulling you into shoulder extension. And so the shoulder extension And there, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of internal rotation, but that's not the main movement. So you you pull in like that, that engages your lats more. The lats kind of act as the linchpin for your back whenever you're setting your back, which is why we cue people to engage their lats or to pull the bar into their legs whenever they do a normal deadlift. And so for you, we were able to progress the squats like pretty effectively. I think we got up to three by five at 275 with the Mars bar. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that sounds right. Yeah.
1: I think that that was about as high as that we went. And then that was about the time that you went on, you went on vacation and you had, you had that time. And then, then we run into the problem that whenever you came back, whenever we were doing the program that we're doing now is that you don't have access to the Mars bar at the gym that you go to. Mm -hmm. And rather than giving you low bar back squats and potentially aggravating your elbow, we're trying to find other squat variations to kind of give you a little bit of different stimulus, and so we've been using the cannonball squat for the last three weeks, and we're going to pull that away and then use something else for the next three weeks because that can be pretty stressful whenever you do it over a long term.
0: Mm-hmm. And and but, guys that are listening to this and are looking for exercise variety to solve boredom, don't don't do it. <laughs> if you're in a specific situation like this and you need to you know to switch things up for psychological purposes or for rehab purposes, you know you've got all this exercise selection at your disposal, but. If you're trying to get stronger, don't cannonball squat. You know, just if you can low bar back squat. No, it's a terrible low bar
1: back squat. It's a terrible exercise, terrible exercise for strength development. (laughs) But whenever we're trying to put we're I mean, our focus is hypertrophy and and making making you still work hard with a lower a lower weight, then yeah, they're totally fine for that. I mean, they're very great for developing the developing the quadriceps, but they're very, very hard on the anterior structures of the knee and quad tendon. so you can't do them for a long period of time. Good to, good to throw into the program for a three or four week block and then move away from them. And then you got to switch something else out. And then that becomes a problem whenever you start trying to complicate your program mm. is that people will complicate their program. They'll throw a bunch of accessory lifts in there, but they're not really understanding like just how long you should do certain exercises. Some of these more isolated or the kind of these more specialized exercises, they're not they're not really useful to use for a long period of time. Use them for a short period of time because you want the increased stress, but you can't tolerate that increased stress for a long period of time. So mm. cannonball squats don't need to be part of your program for, you know, the next six years so that you can get, you know, some quad sweep. It needs to be something that you do for four or five, six weeks at the very most, because your program has changed where you need some extra, you need some extra quadriceps strain or stress, but you don't have access to a, another piece of equipment that would be better. Like I'd much rather you do a belt squat, but you don't have access to a belt squat. So we have to, we have to make a decision there. Mm. And so we'll, we're going to switch that out for something else this, this upcoming week.
0: Let me know if you need me to find a place yeah, for the belt squat because le- just tell me what is most ideal and i'll do my best to to find a way to get it done
1: all right yeah and then like for your squat progression we never really got to the point where we were doing really heavy singles with with the squat because we didn't need to mm-hmm. um your the, the mars bar as good of a as good of a um equipment design as it is it still is not nearly as good as squatting with a, a regular bar. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for myself, I can squat. I can squat in the low 500s pretty much any given day of the week. Um, but whenever I put a safety squat bar or a Mars bar on, like I'm squatting in the high, the high threes. So I mean, there's there's more than a 20% difference between what I can low bar squat and what I can use with a safety squat bar. I mean, it's a cookie safety squat bar squat is really really heavy yeah. and really hard to manage
0: it's a it's, um, so, a it's a it's a clunky device it's kind of hard to keep things as tight and and the standard barbell is the solution if, if you can if you can manage it
1: yeah after shoulder surgery i mean i could not get the bar on my back i could not get my arm back far enough to low bar squat and so now i'm kind of doing a little bit of kind of like a bastardized high bar low bar squat because i'm still still missing about 20, 20 degrees of external rotation on this arm. Mm. And so it doesn't get back quite far enough to, to squat really securely. So I've had to change my grip. Um, like I use a, I'm using a talon grip now. So I'm actually grabbing the bar like this huh. with just three fingers over the bar instead, because that gives me a little, little extra mobility to get back here and I can kind of wedge my arm in there a little bit better.
0: Wrap it's thumbs just not a thumbs on top. Um, no thumbs thumbs and pinky finger under the bar thumbs and pinky under the bar yeah. wrists are bent yep and just kind of a yep. light a light grip yeah gotcha and that's forcing some, some you people to kind of tuck your elbows under the bar and get your shoulder blades as tight as possible
1: yeah because if i if i put my if i put all of my fingers over the bar like i i have to be way out mm. here like my my hands are almost on the barrel end of the barbell mm-hmm. just to get it low enough and then at that point my elbows are pointed way far back and it's just it's just not comfortable and pretty pretty limiting because at some point like you just can't you just can't get comfortable enough to think about actually doing the set you're just constantly thinking about trying to readjust the bar but by by modifying my grip a little bit i can get it pretty close to what pretty close to what it should look like and so you know if you've looked at my my instagram as i've kind of documented this the first couple of squats that I did look very much almost like, uh, almost like I was doing a high bar squat or like a back squat equivalent of like doing a, like a full Olympic clean, Hmm. you know? So if you just imagine doing a full Olympic clean, but just the bar being right here at the base of your neck instead, that's what I was doing because that's as far down as I could get the bar and so I was doing less weight than I could do low bar squat, but I was doing more repetition and I was increasing the range of motion because that's how I was balancing out the lack of stress on the load by adding a little bit more volume and a little bit more a little bit more range of motion.
2: Mm.
1: And then as my shoulder got a little bit better after surgery, then, then I was kind of always trying to push the envelope to get myself back into a low bar squat position. And at this point, I'm probably about as far along as I'm ever going to get. Mm. I don't know if it's really realistic for me to get much more. And so now it's just a now just a function of getting more secure with that with that modified grip. But um, but like with your squat, we couldn't progress it the same way that we did everything else because you were limited by the by the equipment
0: that you were using. Mm-hmm. This is it getting older uh, fun? <laughs> uh, and by the way, it's, it's weird. Oh, by the way, I was going to say, um, it's nice now that you've changed the program so that I can, I can train when I'm on the road because during, during the, uh, the days when I had to use a safety squat bar, I mean, I couldn't even train in my garage. You know, I had to go to starting strength Boise, which is great, but it's a 30 minute drive. I like being there, but, um, sometimes it's nice just to pop into the garage or go to crunch down the street and do some bro stuff. And, uh, just depends on the workout for the day. Um, and I have to also say, speaking of which, since I wasn't able to set PRs, it's, it was nice to work isolation movements to failure, actually. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the hard work of uh, having a rep almost fail and then going after another one with almost no stakes, getting a little bit of a pump, which, which admittedly I kind of enjoy. And uh, I mean... It's something hard physically. I was just so excited to do something hard physically again because it's just like think, it's missing from my life. So that's that's been – thank you for, be, for being flexible is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think
1: that might be something that, like, people should know too. Like, if you're going to do that type of a program, at some point, like, I mean, everybody everybody's going to drift back to that, even if it's for a short period of time. Like, just the the monotony of strength training. I mean, I, I trained exclusively squat bench deadlift, overhead press for – uh, the better part of a decade with only brief periods of time where it was kind of like you, like I'm on the road and they don't have the the requisite equipment needed to do whatever. So you just go into the gym and you get a workout or you cut out of work a little bit early and go to the gym and, you know, there's too many people there. So you just do what, what's available. But just because you're doing a hypertrophy program does not mean that your program is easy.
0: Right not by any means your
1: pro your program is very very difficult it's very hard
0: there's nothing
1: easy about there's nothing easy about it doing a set of doing a set of or three sets of eight at the end of your bench press doing ramping sets to a top top weight of three sets of eight if it's programmed appropriately like that last set of eight is freaking miserable
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and then doing your your upper body hypertrophy work at the very end of the workout and taking one set to failure and doing kind of like a Mike Mincer or or Dorian Yates, like one set to failure where you do as many reps as you can do. As soon as, as soon as you kind of hit failure, you take a short, short, short break, do as many reps as you can. I think, um, some people call those mile reps. Hmm. It's just, this is Dorian Yates training. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) you're just training like Dorian Yates, but it's, but it's, it's extremely hard. Mm. It's extremely hard. And a lot of the feedback that you've given whenever you finish was, man, I was freaking tired at the end of that workout. Mm -hmm. And that, that's what separates your program from a lot of what you see in the gym. Like no matter what you're doing, it has to be hard.
2: Mm.
1: It has to be hard. And you asked the question about physical therapy. That is the main issue that I have with physical therapy you could potentially take lower level exercise and make it effective, but it has to be hard. Mm. But if you're trying to get somebody to keep coming back to physical therapy and you don't have an engaged patient population that these are not, these are not self-selected patients that want to get back to function or they want to, they want to speed up their rehab. They want to, they want to get back to something better than what they were before their injury, or before their surgery, you have to, in order to keep the doors open, you have to give standard of care, but you also have to give it, deliver it in such a way that somebody will come back. Somebody comes into my rehab clinic and they're not, not engaged. They don't have the, the, the mentality where they want to work hard in physical therapy. If they want kind of like a spa experience, right? They want, they want a hot pack and they want somebody to rub their shoulders and all that kind of stuff. If they come in and I make them do, these are you know, armed forces, sets, by the way. Oh, there's a lot of
0: that. A lot of that. <laughs> you
1: know, I've, I've said it before and it's, it's not an, in, it's not an indictment on the armed forces at all. It's a, it's a product of the system that we live in that working as a medical provider in the military system is, very, very similar to working in a workman's compensation clinic. They're they're all The, the experience is almost identical. Mm. Now, I mean, if you went to, if you were, if you were a medical provider for like a special mission unit, or you're at someplace uh, in U.S. Army Special Operations Command, like if you work with SEALs, Rangers, uh, United States Army Special Forces, something like that, those individuals are like multiple time volunteers to get where they are. Mm. They volunteer for the military. They volunteer for airborne school. They volunteer for the, the, the special operations training, the, the qualification course, the follow on training, like those individuals have a a vested interest in staying where they are.
2: Mm.
1: You know, if you look at the the rank and file, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, benefit to being injured in the military because Potentially, you don't have to show up to morning formation because you're injured. You're not going to run. So, you know what? Just go to the gym in the morning or something like that. Get out of doing work that you don't want to do. Potentially, get out of field field training and stuff like that. So, it, even though we don't want to, we do incentivize uh, individuals to be hurt. And so, whenever some people come into the clinic, and it's probably – I mean, it's probably – or maybe less individuals who come into the clinic with an injury, like they're not, they don't have a vested interest in getting better. Mm. There's a benefit for them to be limited. And so whenever they come into the clinic, like there's no way I'm going to be able to convince them that they need to work hard, Mm. that rehab should be like, they should earn their function back. They come into the clinic and they want to be, they want to be pampered. It's a, it's two hours to get out of work. You come in, you get a hot pack, you get somebody to rub your, rub your shoulders. Um, you know, you do some light, light exercise with Theraband, and it gets you out of work for two hours, and and they're totally fine with that. So the mentality comes ah. into it comes into play, and whenever you work in the civilian world, you know, depending on where you're at or who who your main referral source is, you may not get a whole lot of people that come in that want to work hard.
2: Mm.
1: So so, the, um, the physical therapy is always going to be limited. Mm because of the expectation of, of patients and the expectation of surgeons, yep. you know, um, the idea of first do no harm. That's going to be, it's going to be over accentuated to don't work my patient too hard. Right. What's not, what's not going to be taken into account is do no harm can also be don't do enough for my patient.
0: Yeah. Don't harm do harm could be not patient. provided enough stress. Right. But that's, I mean,
1: how many times have you ever heard of a medical provider being, being sued for malpractice for not getting them back to function? I mean, right. That they didn't, they right. didn't do enough for me. I mean, it's certainly in the, in the medical field, somebody misdiagnosed or they didn't run a, a, a diagnostic test or something that was indicated, that, that's, that's something else. But you never hear of a physical therapist get sued because they didn't progress somebody enough. You hear a physical therapist getting sued because they progress somebody too much. Yep. And so their incentive so, is
0: to, to take it easy and to take the safe route.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a safe route because everybody will say, you know, first, do no harm. Yep. And like I said, it's do no harm by not doing too much for my patient. Don't push too hard. Yeah. Because
0: um, your liability is so, based on your actions, not your lack of actions in most cases. So you, yeah, you and have then, an incentive then to
1: your liability is going to be based on what your peers say. Mm. So if I, if I got brought up on a malpractice claim because of something I did in a privileged um, setting where I was working as a healthcare provider um, and I went to court over it, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to pull in another physical therapist that has a board certification like I do. And they're going to question that person. They're going to ask them about what did they think in their professional opinion of my rehab program and since I'm fairly unique in how I, how I do things, you know, what is the normal orthopedic clinical specialist going to say whenever at the three month mark, I had somebody low bar squatting after an ACL reconstruction, Yeah, you know, they're, they're going to say that's not standard of practice. That's not what I do. And then that's where I'm going to be held liable mm. because I don't do what, I don't do what this guy does.
0: Um, Even so if you help your patients more than the standard situation, if you dare deviate, you expose yourself.
1: Yes. I mean, there's, defi- there's definitely a risk for it. So, I mean, I I'd, I'd have to carry malpractice insurance. Um, luckily, I've never had a malpractice claim. Most of my patients are very happy with the care that they get. Um, my clinic here, we've, we've migrated more towards much more advanced, like functional-based rehab. So uh, almost everybody that comes in gets squats, they get deadlifts, they get some variation of those or uh, the pressing movements but it does come with a a fair amount of patient education that we we give the patient a choice. We say, look, I mean, here's, here's the situation. This is what you have. We've got two options. Whenever it comes to your rehab, I can treat you in a more traditional rehab approach. We can do Theraband. We can do, there's this whole rack of pastel colored dumbbells. We can have you do some things with those. Um, We can have you, we can have you get on a treadmill. We can have you do a, a, an arm bike. We can do all these like normal things, have you hold a body blade and like shake the hell out of it for, you I'll, know, I'll waste your time, time as
0: much as you want me to. Just tell me. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I,
1: I, on occasion, those those words have come out of my mouth. I've yeah. said, look, if if you want to waste your time and you want to be treated like that, like I'm perfectly happy, perfectly happy with doing that, because, you know, you talked about evidence based practice, you know, one of the pillars of evidence-based practice is patient values. Mm. If the patient, if the patient, that's what their value set is, and that's how they want to be treated, then you kind of have an obligation to do it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Am I doing any harm by treating this person with body blade and BOSU exercises? Uh, Probably not. Probably not. Are they getting maximal, are they, are they getting maximal function back? Definitely not. But but if the patient's value is not to get back to full function or increase their function to what it was pre-injury then then i'm giving them what i'm giving them what they want um but then then i say the other thing that we could do is we can actually kind of treat you like an athlete we can have you we can have you back to lifting weights we can have you actually train harder so that whenever you get done with your rehab you are going to be more capable of sustaining the rigors of military training because you're going to be bigger, you're going to be stronger, you're going to be more conditioned. We can do that for you too, so the choice is up to you. Just tell me which way you want to, you want to go. And I mean it's probably an 80/20 split. You probably have about 80% of the people will choose the more advanced stuff and then you have a lot of people that even at that point will say, "You know, I'd rather I'd rather do the the other way, the traditional re approach."
0: I'm really happy here. It's 80% that take the hard route. Cause it seems to me that uh... that
1: that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that all 80% of those are a hundred percent of the 80% um, complete their rehab Mm -hmm. and that they don't drift back into that. I mean, at that point, we're probably six, seven out of 10 people that come into the clinic. Like they, they get better. And then there's also a lot of patient education. So individuals that don't want to get function back, you know, you do try to educate the person on kind of the life, the lifelong, um, Uh, ramifications of taking the easy approach, Mm -hmm. taking the easy approach. Like uh, you're a 20 year old with some anterior knee pain and you don't want to run. I understand that, but here are the ramifications of being 20 years old with some patellofemoral pain syndrome, knee pain, and already starting to Take away physical activity from your life. Yep. This, these are the lifelong ramifications for that. And so you can turn some of those, but I mean, there's some people that you're just never gonna, you're never gonna change that. And so getting back to the very beginning of, of this recording, whenever you you were talking about your mindset going into, going into the rehab process, I mean that's far more than anything that I do, far more than any knowledge that I have, as far as the rehab process, that's the key variable there Mm. that whenever somebody, whenever somebody wants to get better and somebody wants to improve and they will look for any way to do that, those individuals are always going to have a better prognosis than somebody who doesn't do it. And it's, it's definitely hard. You mentioned it too, that you you have an injury and you start worrying like, how bad is it? How much is this going to affect me over the long term? Mm. Um, I think I, I think I understand rehab pretty well. Um, whenever I, whenever I had surgery and I got back into the gym and I was finally cleared for strength training and I realized that I was not benching 400 pounds anymore. You know, like I, I even had that thought, like, shit like where am i where am i going to top out after this like mm-hmm. how low did my how low did my ceiling go just from having this surgery and i'm looking at my arm and it's all atrophied and you know my range of motion sucks i can't get the bar on my back and it's like damn i'm never going to squat again and so even even somebody who at least thinks that they know they know this pretty well. Like I had to fight those same, those same, um, those same thoughts. Yeah. Stuff, stuff that I would
0: tell, reassure my clients about, I'm having the same things leak into my yeah. own head and I'm like, shit, this is interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there having this, like this mental struggle with myself. You know, I'm laying in bed at night tr- trying to go to sleep, but I can't sleep because I'm over here thinking, man, am I, If am, did I set my last PR ever? Like, am I ever going to, am I ever going to PR again? and it's rough yeah and then but then that's whenever you start you start going back to the the data and that's what i try to do with you is go back to the data that you're accumulating look at looking at your looking at your program looking at your completed workouts and seeing the progress over time Mm. and looking at the the rate of progress especially whenever you hit these periods where your progress increases rapidly and then that's what kind of helps turn that tide, but you have to have the right mentality to get better. Yep. If, if you come out of a surgery and you think, well, um, my doctor told me I'm never going to run again. And you believe that then the answer is you're probably
0: right. Self-fulfilling but prophecy. I mean,
1: but, it, you know, if you think about it, I mean, we have triple amputees that get back, that get back to running. Mm-hmm they get prosthetics. And I mean, despite what everybody wants to say on, you know, YouTube comment sections, running with the prosthetic is not cheating. It's actually far more difficult to run with a prosthetic than it is with a natural leg.
0: Could you imagine the miserable jackass that comments on a YouTube video of a guy running with the prosthetic saying that's cheating,
1: saying that, (laughs) that it's cheating because this individual has engine, some engineer created this and you're like, no, okay. <laughs> that's not even, cl- that's not even close. The energy return on a, on a, a carbon fiber blade prosthetic is like 60 to 80%. Mm-hmm. So you put a hundred pounds of pressure into that. It's going to spring back with 60 to 80 pounds. You know, you don't run, but whenever you run, you're going to get 300% energy return from your calf complex. Mm. And so people with prosthetics are at a, at a great disadvantage. Plus it really hurts. Really hurts to run whenever you're a, you're an amputee and you have a prosthetic, because the weight bearing surface is the socket. You don't you don't distribute the the weight bearing through your feet and multiple joints. It's just now, it's now like the 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 residual limb that's fitting into the socket. That's the that's the weight bearing surface. Yeah. But we have people we have people that get back into running all the time. There's individuals that have gone back to gone back to combat. A combat service in special mission units that are, that are amputees. Mm. I mean, if you want to look at something that's like really, really um, interesting is look at a, um, an individual named Brad Hollings, Brad Hollings was a, um, was a special mission unit operator who, um, who fought in the battle of Mogadishu in 1993 and his helicopter was hit by an RPG and they didn't crash in the city. They actually had a hard landing back at the stadium. And whenever um, the RPG hit the hit the helicopter, it sheared I think his right leg off. Mm. But he, but this is in the this is in the early '90s, and prosthetic technology was not great. But he got fitted with the prosthetic, and he went back to service for several more years with a special mission unit. And now he runs one of the largest, most progressive um, prosthetics companies in the entire world. Damn. And I mean, at another, another individual, Colin Rich um, got shot in the back of the head in Iraq and he was, he was legally blind and he went back and served with the 82nd airborne as a Sergeant major in combat. These are the people we
0: need in the military, not these. uh, We, we,
1: we have a lot of people like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of people like that, Um, but there's for it. This is probably getting way off tangenty at this point, but you know, one of the the interesting things that you'll read and you, you kind of see this type of psychology, whenever you look at the boards, uh, you look at the starting strength boards, you look at the starting strength Facebook page and somebody posts a question about an injury universally, almost universally, somebody's going to say, I have this going on. Has anybody ever dealt with something similar? Hmm. And you know, like just, just that line, it's, it's almost ubiquitous to all of the injury posts on either the starting strength forum or the Facebook post. People will have like anterior knee pain whenever they squat and they always follow it up with, has anybody had anything similar?
0: Nope. Because the there's
1: always, there's this, there's always this thing that whatever you have is like a completely unique injury that nobody has ever seen before and and people don't people are just kind of like there's like a draw to having something that nobody else has had
0: special and snowflake syndrome it,
1: yeah i mean I, I wouldn't want to use the the term snowflake because i mean that term gets used all the time and i kind of really just dislike how frequently it's used but that that kind of like speaks to the psychology right like i go and i squat and my right knee hurts um at the, the front of my knee the first thing that most people should think is i probably did something different than i normally did
2: mm-hmm.
1: that i i subjected my my body to a stress that it has not previously adapted to i need to clean up my technique so let me go to the video and see what happens mm. but you see it's Exceptionally common. Somebody has knee pain. They're on their linear progression. They're on week three, and they're at 105 pounds on their squat, and they have a little bit of knee pain. The first thing they do is they jump on the board and they want people to comment on: have, has anybody had ever had any knee pain with squatting? But you know what they don't do? Nobody gets on the. Nobody gets on there and has knee pain going downstairs, and then jumps on. A Facebook community group saying, Hey, you know, I was just walking down the stairs. And I had a little bit of knee pain. Has anybody ever experienced anything similar?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's almost kind of a unique, it's kind of like a unique mindset whenever it comes to training. Mm. And I've said it before that I think that one of the problems with training and training injured individuals is a lot of people have this, this mentality where they're always looking for the off ramp. They're always looking for the exit ramp. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the, they, they, they know they should be training. They start training. But everybody's kind of looking for that excuse. I say everybody, I don't really mean that, but people, people throughout the training population, they'll start training, they'll have something happen. And then that becomes, that becomes the exit ramp.
0: And that's how, you know, hey, training is you know, not for them. Cause if you can't deal I with did, the speed bumps, I, I did
1: starting strength for six weeks, but you know, I, I started having this knee pain and like now I just, I just can't squat because every time I do it causes me knee pain. I mean, th- that goes back to what you, you had, you had this issue, you started asking for information, but you were asking for information about how, who can I talk to? Who's going to, who's going to help me get better? Not who's going to tell me that this is not for me anymore.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. How, how can I, uh, what excuse is there for me to sit on my ass, become a victim and accept that I'm now a diminished version of myself. That's not happening unless it has to happen. And then if it has to happen, I'm still going to max things out as much as I can to get as much out of this life that I can. And the physical part of the life of my life is it's, it's, you know, I understand what Rip says when he says, uh, strength is the most important thing in life. This is true, whether you want it to be or not. And, um, if those words don't ring true to you, then, um, you either, you haven't gone through the process of getting stronger. And if you have, you haven't thought about it long enough because it is spot on.
1: Yeah, I mean, at this point, at, at 40 years old, I look around and I look at my peers. I look at my peers in the in the military, so fellow field grade officers or senior NCOs that are that are about my age. And I mean, it, I, I I don't say this. I I guess I should say this. I try to say this with as much humility as possible. But there's not a whole lot of 40 year olds in the military that. That can perform like I do. That look like I do. I mean, it's it's quite common. I live in a building full of of my peers, and most of them are most of them are slightly overweight. Um, they've got a relatively high body fat percentage relative to their relative to their weight. Um, you see them in the gym, and whenever they do squat, they squat ninety five pounds or one hundred and fifteen pounds or something like that. Um, most of them can run a little bit but you start looking at your peer group and yeah, I've had like a couple of orthopedic surgeries, but the vast majority of people that we treat post orthopedic surgery are not people that got hurt training. Mm. We got, we treat most of our, most of our post-op patients are people that get injured course of life, right? That these are people that have knee replacements that have never trained a day in their life. So squats didn't destroy their knees. So what destroyed their knees like Or we have people with, with rotator cup tears, they get it repaired, but yet they've never been in the gym a day in their life. But whenever it comes to training, everybody wants to find their exit ramp or they want to, they want to, it's confirmation bias. Yep. You you think that weights are dangerous. You're going to try it anyways, but then you have this, this ill effect from it. Mm. And now it's like, yeah, I knew it. I knew that this was bad for me. I knew that these were bad for my back. Um,
0: you know, what's cool about our gyms? Will? We, we have a lot of people that come in like that uh, with a bad attitude, thinking they're going to hate it. And actually the Berkowitzes were the same way. You should watch that video if you haven't of their interview that Paul Horn did. And Dave basically said he thought he'd go to, to train uh, after a month. He'd be like, well, I gave it a shot, you know, back to the couch. But it, but even, even a mindset like that was changed by the profound effects that he received from, from going through this process. So I think you're spot on that. A lot of people are looking for the exit ramp. Um, But i think it's cool that starting strength can produce such phenomenal results that it can actually change people's minds in some cases
1: you know i i kind of work a little bit as kind of like a consultant for you guys right but i'm not employed i'm not employed by starting strength gyms i have no financial uh ties to your gyms or anything like that but i do work with a lot of people from starting strength gyms and i do have to just put a plug in here for this and this was not scripted or anything like that so you can feel free to edit this out if, if you don't think it's appropriate. But one of the things that I've noticed about the Starting Strength gyms is ha- that whenever I have one of my clients that that trains at a Starting Strength gym is doing their set, it's exactly the same atmosphere at Wichita Falls Athletic Club. Whenever somebody there's there's no there's no jackassery going on when somebody is about to do their set of squats. Everybody stops. Everybody turns. Everybody faces the person who's squatting. Whenever somebody gets done with their squats, they re-rack the bar. People are people applaud them. People tell them good job. There's positive positive reinforcement. But the atmosphere itself is like incredible. That in between sets, nobody's nobody's um, nobody's training. You you see as somebody's getting their camera set up and all that kind of stuff. Everybody's talking. There's there's like a there's a community right. So these gyms have like created these little communities, and whenever somebody somebody gets up to squat, nobody else is doing anything. Mm. Everybody's letting that person focus on the task at hand. There's not people flexing in the mirror. There's not people, you know, doing uh, you know Instagram like selfie things. There's nobody acting like a jackass doing a TikTok dance on the platform next to them or anything to like detract. <laughs> Or distract that that individual from what they're doing. And like it's such a great environment that like I cannot wait to get back to the US because I just wanna drop in at whatever the closest starting strength gym is to Pennsylvania whenever I get there. Because you just you I thought Wichita Falls Athletic Club was the only place that you were gonna get that same type of environment, but you've somehow recreated that across all of these gyms.
0: Yeah, man, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty special. I have to say, I definitely agree with you and it's a, it's a cool place to be. I actually like uploading my videos to share with you because I like showing you the vibe and the people and it just all comes down to people. You know, the, the methodology and all the thinking about the program and the way that's been established is the people that created that rip and then the franchise team and all these other guys, Steph, Nick. And then the people in the gyms are the ones that create that environment. They're the ones that create that. And the other cool
1: thing too, is you work with somebody at a starting strength gym for you have some longevity, um, working with that person. And you start seeing the same people in, you start seeing the same people, um, stepping away from the rack or, you know, putting their bar in as they're getting the camera set up and you see the weights, the weights are increasing or that the guys, the guy that you saw three months ago is now significantly bigger than he was, 3 months ago. And Good, so man. you get to see kind of as a casual uh observer of these individuals who I don't know by name but you start seeing like not only do you have this community atmosphere there but it's it's full of positive reinforcement. Everybody's everybody's like kind of pushing you along to to do better but then you kind of see the results not only in the person that you're working with but with everybody else. And so then that that helps kind of push everybody else along because even if you don't necessarily see progress in yourself, because that's always the hardest person to see progress in, you see progress with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And like I, I just have to say, man, like it is it is a, a pretty unique culture. And the fact that you're able to recreate that that um, environment that you get at Wichita Falls Athletic Club is just it's awesome.
0: And it's a pretty easy barometer in, in, in my mind when I visit a gym. It's like, if Rip walks in here, is he going to be happy with it? And every every time the answer is yes, because we hire the right people. We bring on the right people to open these things, and they hire the right coaches. Um, and then it's the blue book come to life, right? So I'm glad you like it, because uh, once your Army days are over, I hope there's something enticing here for you, and you can join us, because we, we need your skill set, as you can see. You're, we're working at the moment we're not involved financially. There's no official setup. It's just, we have people that need your expertise. We pass them to you. Everybody benefits. It's all good. And if we can formalize that when you're out of the military, that would be cool to have an official starting strength gyms PT product, you know? So, hey, one one last question for you. Um, And because we can go on for hours. And and by the way, if we miss anything you want to talk about, come on again, because people gave me great feedback about our first episode. Got a lot of people messaging me out of the blue, just saying that was really informative. Um, So my last question for you is, we opened this podcast talking about the unfortunate situation when it comes to not being able to outsource your healthcare. You have to manage your own healthcare and understand what's happening. Otherwise, if you're trusting strangers or trusting bureaucracies or trusting titles, you're putting yourself at inordinate risk. So the reason for that is, all the stuff we talked about, but to summarize it, it essentially is a medical professional has to make money. That's incentive number one. A medical professional has to reduce their liability. That's incentive number two. Both of those things drive behavior because incentives drive behavior. And then um, they have to do the ethical, moral, job-aligned purpose for going into this profession thing, which is helping the patient get better. But there are Medical providers that say, I'm going to help the patient get better and that value will help me earn money and then the liability stuff will work itself out if I'm trying to do the right thing. Those are people like you. Those people are very few and far between. Most other people in my experience are, this is the protocol, this is the standard, I'm not here to question, I'm just here to follow orders. And yes, I have a medical degree, but uh, I'm actually not going to go out on a limb, do my own thinking and take any risks because what is the upside for me in doing that? I'd rather just play it safe. So the question for you, Will, is do you have any advice for people that are listening to this and they're all, they've all they seen a glimmer of this in their own healthcare before or they believe what I'm saying and they believe that the stories I'm, I'm talking about with these doctor interactions are true and they're aware of these risks, What advice do you have for the standard person that needs to manage his healthcare and is not a medical professional and has to deal with the standard medical bureaucracy and all of these competing incentives and competing interests? What, what is someone to do? How, how do they get the right standard of care? So I, I think
1: one of the important things to to understand is like a physician has a physician, a physical therapist, any medical provider does not necessarily have authority over you, right? We do not, we do not direct or order you to do anything. What we are is we're, we're, uh, we're a consult, mm-hmm. uh, we're a consultant to you, right? You come to us, you have an issue and you're, we are a specialized consultant to you. So, what I would tell people is you have to be a conscientious consumer of healthcare. And so whenever you, uh, if you have like a HMO plan or something like that, and you have a primary care manager and you have your first appointment with that person and that, that, um, that provider does not share your same values or does not understand your values or is not willing to take your values into consideration then you're going to have to kind of shop around until you find somebody that does. Now that's a big difference between doctor shopping. All right. So the term doctor shopping is you have a pre, you have a predetermined um, end state that you want, that you want a prescription for Oxycontin and you keep going to doctors until you get what you wanted. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you find a, a physician that or a primary care manager or a physical therapist or whoever you, whatever type of healthcare that you're you're requiring at that time that shares shares your value as uh, or gives you value or understands your values so like if you go to a physician and you say hey i just want to let you know like um i i tra- i regularly strength train this is what i do and the individual turns around and says well you shouldn't be doing that that's not the provider for you.
0: I've had that's that experience. That's not the provider for you. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's not that's not the provider for you. That's not to say that that person is not is not a good physician or provider or whatever. That's just not the one for you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, a lot of times, you can, <clears throat> if you do have a provider, you find a provider. Which the linchpin of the American medical system is the primary care manager. Um, if you can find a primary care manager that. That understands your value set and takes those into consideration whenever whenever it comes time to um, to determine your your plan of care and stuff like that. Then that individual will probably take that into consideration whenever they're making specialty referrals too. You know, and so you you don't you're you're not set. It's not set in stone who you have to see. It just a lot of individuals, even though. Nobody, nobody goes into a store anymore and buys a product that they've never bought before without pulling up Amazon and looking at the Amazon reviews, you know, like we will, we'll look at a a sound bar for our TV for three weeks and we'll, we'll research sound bars for three weeks until we decide to make a purchase of $300, but nobody does the same thing whenever it comes to their physician or their physical therapist. I mean, there's, there's websites out there that have reviews of individuals and they have patient testimonials and stuff like that. Now, granted on the, on the person's website, they're only going to give you the good testimonials. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that be a conscientious consumer. So search for somebody that shares your values, that understands your values and doesn't dismiss them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any provider for the most part that dismisses your values and says, well, this is the only way that we're going to do it. um, That, that provider, if you're looking for something outside of the norm, that's not the provider for you. Mm. That's not the provider for you. And you're never going to, you're probably never going to turn that provider around to where they, they do that. And some some people do that. Mm. Um, the, other, the other thing that I would say is that you have to be careful of anybody who promises you miraculous results.
0: Um, or doesn't talk most about the downsides.
1: Or doesn't talk about the downsides. That's that's particularly troubling. That was going to be the third thing that I that I mentioned, but we'll cover mm-hmm. it together. Individuals that that um, that tells you that you're going to get miraculous results. Um, and this is this is more directed at individuals like physical therapists, chiropractors, and stuff like that. It's very common for practitioners in the allied health fields um, to. To offer a certain type of treatment that they they're gonna they're gonna claim that the results from this are better than anything else, mm. right? Um, uh, craniosacral manipulation for chiropractors cures everything. Um, uh, voodoo flossing for physical therapists or trigger point dry needling or I, I don't know Reiki stuff or healing crystals or whatever. Like any of these reasons. other like providers or pseudo providers that claim that their technique is markedly better than anybody else, you always have to look at it as probably being dubious to begin with, right? Um, And then outside of that, People who don't talk about the risks, like if somebody's offering a procedure but they don't tell you the risks of the procedure, or if they minimize them completely, then I would say that that's that's a provider that you should probably look to to replace with somebody else. Hmm. And so those are the three things that I would say that you have to be a conscientious consumer. You have to find the right fit for you. And there are there are just as many physicians, uh, primary care doctors, as there are in the world. There, there's there's that many different variations of primary care. The, a lot of the treatments are the same, but having a provider that takes your value set into play, which we're supposed to do as evidence-based providers, we're supposed to take patient values into and it doesn't take it doesn't take a terminal professional degree to tell somebody not to do something.
2: Mm.
1: It does take um, advanced education to take somebody who's injured, And figure out a way for them to get back to doing what they want to do Mm. it doesn't take a graduate degree to say well it hurts whenever you run so just don't run (laughs) that's that's preposterous but i mean in a lot of in a lot of settings that's that's as much as you're going to get and also taking into account that physicians everybody likes to think that physicians are rich that because somebody's a medical doctor that they're just they're just overloaded with cash That's not the case they make a good living but they spent 10 years getting to the to the point where they actually make a decent amount of money and the amount that they pay on overhead, the amount they pay on malpractice insurance, they're doing about the same as somebody with an MBA, maybe,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, somebody who's making a 300, $320,000 salary is OBGYN is probably bringing in 120, 140 take home each year. They're, they're not, they're not strapped with cash. Pharmaceutical companies are not paying these doctors' kickbacks. Now, granted, you have neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, something like that that can do significantly better, but uh, primary care doctors are not usually extremely wealthy. So they're not making decisions. They're not necessarily making decisions on what's gonna bring them the most money. For them, they spent four years undergrad, four years medical school, one year internship, and a three-year residency to get where they're at to make a comfortable living they have to protect their license. They have to protect their license. And the way that the medical community has gone is evidence-based care has kind of created um, clinical practice guidelines and clinical practice guidelines become standard of care, but you may not relook clinical practice guidelines in depth, but every five, six, seven, eight years, something like that. Hmm. I mean, uh, for something like plantar fasciitis, we still have, the clinical practice guidelines were dated like 2016
0: and they might so be there, wrong there, to there begin with
1: yeah i mean there at the all, time all that kinds was the of best,
0: protocols that are wrong just flat that out that was not the correct. best
1: available that was the best available evidence but i mean evidence is not always completely up to date you know yep and so whenever you just go cookie cutter approach and you just go by the clinical practice guidelines, especially if they're dated, you may not be working with the best available evidence. Mm. That was the best available evidence when that clinical practice guideline was created. Mm. And so um, the the last thing I would say with, with uh, physicians is, you have to, you have to be careful. You have to be careful, but it's a welcome sign. Whenever somebody tells you what the evidence suggests,
0: mm-hmm. suggests is if, a great it, word, suggests anytime if, people if know, somebody, or they're black and white in the, in the medical setting, that is a big red flag. Yeah,
1: anybody says that science proves this, like that's, that's a dubious claim. Don't, don't listen to that person. That's, that's that that's the complete antithesis of science. I like, like science it when they refer to anything. science
0: as an entity, like it's some kind of oracle yeah, or something. No, science is a process. It's a, yeah. it's a method. Yeah. It's a method. Yeah.
1: It's a method. It's a it's a step-by-step process. Right. Um, yeah. and and science is ever changing and it has to be ever-changing. And the science is never settled. Anybody who ever says the science is settled they are not practicing science anymore. They're practicing they're practicing dogma.
0: Right. Exactly. At,
1: at any time, even though I use um, compound barbell lifts in my rehab setting, because my review of the, of the literature and the evidence and my, my experience as a clinician says that that is the best available thing right now. If somebody were to bring me a convincing argument that body blade exercises on a BOSU ball produced superior results to barbell training. And it was it was highly supported by the the literature. I would do I would do that tomorrow. I would change my
0: practice tomorrow. But you would test it. You wouldn't swallow it whole would, and throw I it all would, up. I would test diagnosis. it and You'd then say, so hey, this the might the be evidence, worth looking into, right?
1: The evidence says this is a much better rehab protocol than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I would bring it into my clinic and I would start layering in patients doing that testing them against the people that are already on that, the historical data I have with patients and how they progress with that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, if I'm getting much better results with that and some East and hot pack, then guess what? That, that gym equipment that I have in my, my clinic is going to go largely unused mm-hmm. because I'm going to, I'm going to modify my clinical practice to go best with what the, the best available evidence right now says, Um, And so having a physician that will say, Hey, at the time, the best available evidence suggests this is a superior treatment to this. Um, Just as an anecdotal, an anecdotal um, example, that's exactly how my orthopedic surgeon practices. Mm. I went in with them, you know, done an MRI on my shoulder. I had known for a long time that my proximal bicep tendon was the pain generator. I knew that I had a slap lesion on my in my shoulder because every time at the bottom of the bench, as my my humerus translates anteriorly, there was instability there. I would lose stability at the bottom of the bench. Mm. Um, the biceps tendon was constantly getting irritated and painful, and it was limiting my workout. Have the MRI. The MRI um, said that it was exactly what I thought it was. So I go in and I meet with my orthopedic surgeon, and he says, "Look, man." We can do one of two things: we can do a tenotomy or we can do a tenodesis. Right now, the evidence would suggest that the outcomes are exactly the same, exactly the same. The strength, the strength is usually not not radically different between the two. They're within, they're basically the same. The only difference is that whenever somebody does a tenotomy, that they have persistent cramping and increased fatigability of the bicep. Um, In the long term. Mm. And so we made the decision to do the tenodesis to give me a chance to maintain that because it might improve my ability to um, or my resistance to fatigue and the cramping, the cramping sucks. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Mm. Um, The cramping really does suck. But that was that was the that was the deal. And he provided me with with the, the, um, the articles that he was using to make that recommendation. He had them readily available. I looked over them. we made the decision to go with the tenodesis. Then whenever, whenever the tenodesis failed and I basically just became an involuntary tenotomy, (laughs) then I already had the literature. So I know what the expectations are. Mm. And so that was a, that was a very refreshing um, patient care experience to have an orthopedic surgeon who uh, this guy is, this guy is a fantastic surgeon. Mm. He's a great dude too but he could have easily just said, look, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You're a physical therapist. Um, I know more than you. This is what we're going to do, but he didn't do that. And we had a discussion about uh, the type of tenodesis that we were going to do. We decided collectively that we were going to do a tenodesis that um, was, that was pioneered by an orthopedic surgeon named Matthew Preventure, where we did a double fixation. So instead of just doing, the interference screw, we did a cortical button and an interference screw fixation. Mm. That's what they do with like highly athletic people. He had never done it before, but in the two weeks leading up to the surgery, like he studied relentlessly on how to make sure that he did it and had it, had it done. And my, my recovery was, was impressive and it was just a routine activity of daily living that called the, t- that caused the tenodesis to fail. but that is a perfect example of what a provider should be. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that's a, that's a great start to the answer, which is essentially, you've got to make sure this, the person responsible for your overall care is someone who aligns with your values. I think that's a really good start, but I've got a bunch more questions for you on that. So maybe you can come on again, because I want to talk to you about building a healthcare team. I want to talk to you about how to fill, how to fill in the gaps. And how to understand what the gaps might be of each provider in that team's skill set, um, and then for those of you watching, if you want to comment down in the YouTube comments or on the forum with questions that you have for Will, I'll take some notes on those and I'll ask him those during the next uh, conversation. Because
1: uh, usually in the YouTube comment section, somebody's just gonna they're gonna find one thing that I said that doesn't align with their values, and they'll just they'll just talk shit about that, or they'll. Talk about that! I'm an ugly dude or whatever. The YouTube comment sections, like, it just I almost don't even look at them anymore because there's almost nothing of value. Well, you know or what's great know though, has... man
0: the the comments for the podcast are pretty positive. The comments on the channel lately yes. have been great, um, but and then and then there's these knuckleheads that 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 just spew hatred with bad grammar they're so dumb. You can just toy with them, man. So, um, I'll, I'll no, send you, I'll send you a text when that happens and we'll go back and forth with the guys and have some this fun. Is just
1: like who really has the time to watch. I mean, at this point, this is like, this is like an hour and a half or so yeah. to watch an hour and a half podcast video that probably has nothing to do with anything that they, that they're dealing with or anything like that. To then just go on there and like make comments about how, like, I don't know that I'm an ugly dude or that, uh that I'm wearing this t-shirt or like whatever. It's like, who the fuck has time to do that?
0: Non-productive people, that's who will. The people that go exactly, into your office and want to take the easy route, those are the ones that are spewing hatred and comments on YouTube. Um but- I remember
1: I was given a I was giving a talk at a, a starting strength event and it was I'm giving this talk and I I had a little bit of a verbal faux pas where um I meant to say I meant to say sex but I said biological and I just said gender instead of sex. Mm. Obviously I was talking about sex. How dare you? And I just said, but we're talking about the two biological and, and remember like I'm giving this talk like off memory. Right. And I say the two biological genders. And I, as I said it, I knew I meant sex, but I just didn't go back and correct myself. (laughs) And then somebody, and this was like, this was like a two hour lecture and you go into the comment section because I would—I used to go down there because people would ask questions and I would answer and stuff like that. But I'd go down into the YouTube question, the comment section, and like there was like comments about like uh, well pointing out that I, I said gender instead of sex, so obviously I'm completely uneducated. And how did you. I ever get a physical therapy degree? Man. And then other people were saying like uh, obviously this guy doesn't even have. Um, whatever or else he would have just become a doctor like is instead of a physical therapist and it was like wow you you mean to tell me that like my entire worth as a human being is wrapped up in the fact that i'm not a medical doctor and i'm just a physical therapist instead let's just do this
0: anyone that criticizes you or has shit to talk you have a open invitation onto the podcast we'll talk for an hour (laughs) with or without will you, you choose, but I, I just, I want to show you these people cause I'm getting more familiar with them with this podcast and most of the people are great. And then you've got these knuckleheads that can't spell, they can't type. Uh, they probably can hardly speak and their thinking is, is fairly broken and they're, I feel bad for them. They're in such a bad spot in life that all they can do is just try to look for negative shit to say about strangers on the internet. Right. So yeah, it's, um, it's, it's wild. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely. And it's I think it's hilarious that rip does what
1: he does whenever he kind of makes light of it. Um,
0: comments are like, I go in there great.
1: and really like, it just kind of bothers me. Cause if I, I don't even look at the comments anymore, because I just look at it, like how much trash there is, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's, it's easy. You watch something like this. You don't agree with my approach or whatever, like just turn it off and move on to something mm-hmm. else. Like this isn't for you. This isn't for, for everybody
0: but it's like the howard stern to take the time the people that hated him him more than the people that loved him so hey you fuckers that hate us keep watching click like or click no click dislike (laughs) say something nasty just keep keep feed the algorithm thank you you know (laughs) so well let's leave it at that man because i'll i will spend my entire friday night talking to you um that was really really helpful and uh when when you're out of the military and we're in the same city, I'm taking you to a nice steak as a thank you. Cause it it's it's um, you know, there are a few people that have had a tremendously positive impact on my physical situation and you're now one of them. So thank you for being my coach and helped me through this process. Well, uh, it should be it should be
1: passing through the Boise area around the first part of September.
0: Hell yeah. First Good time part of year of too. If you give yeah. me some notice, we can go rafting with one of the members at Starting St. Boise. He's got a couple of rafts for us. Uh do whatever you want man so let me know
1: yeah i may have to may have to stop in and get a workout in at starting strength boise just because
0: hell yeah and before we is go the gym? Just, what's that the gym culture here is not the same as what you have there it's a little different you're gonna right. love it in person it's it really cool people i mean I, yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to it i can't think of a member at that gym that i don't really enjoy and and wouldn't mind hanging out with outside of the gym you know um yeah Dude, so before we wrap up, what is your? How do people get in touch with you if they want to um, pay for your services and get some help with whatever they're dealing with?
1: Uh, as much as as much as I hate it, um, because I'm a I'm an older guy, like Instagram is really the, the best best place to get um, in contact with me because the the message function on Instagram is probably the most user friendly mm. and it's easy enough to respond to it uh, quickly. So, um, yeah, just go to my Instagram.
0: Just search Will Morris on Instagram, or do you remember the the handle? Uh, it's uh the the handle is Morris D-P-T-S-S-C. Okay, Morris SSC. Morris is with two R's, correct? Yes. Cool. All right, Will. Thanks again, man. I'm happy you're leaving. Korea uh, always, soon. always a pleasure, man. Yep, coming back stateside. Hopefully, going to work with us, and then um, depending on the response from the knuckleheads in the comments, maybe we'll do round three of this too.
1: Yeah, like. it's just it's just an interesting interesting dynamic that can only can only exist on the internet right can only exist on the internet
0: what have we behind the
1: behind the anonymity of the internet and the keyboard like Mm -hmm. people are people don't act that way in person and that's that's kind of a troubling development in society is that people are somebody totally different whenever they have the they're behind the relative safety of their keyboard and their uh, and the internet.
0: In 2022, you can just imagine anything and pretend that's real life. So this is uh this is where we are as a species, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, leave it on a, on a, a somewhat depressing note, but when you get back over here, you'll be, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be in a better mood. Uh, the military All has right. a tendency to do that to you. Thank you, Will. I appreciate the All time. Right, man. Yeah.
1: It's always a pleasure, man. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Hell yeah. All right. Talk soon. Thanks again.